Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature Melissa Joseph, a New York-based artist and independent curator. Her work addresses themes of memory, family history, and the politics of how we occupy spaces. She intentionally alludes to the labors of women as well as her experiences as a second-generation American and the unique juxtapositions of diasporic life. Her work has been shown at the Delaware Contemporary, Woodmere Art Museum, Utah Museum of Contemporary Art, Brattleboro Museum and Art Center, Jeffrey Deitch Projects, Mocha Arlington, and List Gallery at Swarthmore College. Melissa has been featured in Hyperallergic, Artnet, New American Paintings, La Mode, CNN, and Architectural Digest, and participated in several residencies, including Fountainhead, Brick, the Archie Bay Foundation for Ceramic Arts, and will be in residence at the Museum of Art and Design and Greenwich House Poetry in 2023. Enjoy this episode featuring Melissa Joseph. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for joining me on my podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. When did you discover your artistic passion? I think I've been a maker my whole life. I grew up in a small town, and my mom was a crafter, so there was always little bits and bobs of things around to make with, and I I definitely found myself down in the basement making things most of the time. Do you recall if there was a particular artist or body of work that influenced you early on? You know, when I was little, we were in a rural town in Western Pennsylvania. So we didn't have access to museums or things like that. But my mom was something called the picture lady at school. It was a program they had where different people's moms, at the time it was moms only, that would come in and teach about different artists with posters. So I remember my mom coming in to talk to the class about Mary Cassatt. And I think it's pretty interesting that it was a woman artist that I remember learning about so early since the statistics for that happening were pretty slim. And then I remember another art picture lady coming in and talking about Salvador Dali, but I didn't have access to art with academic rigor until college when I started taking art history classes in college. How did your art professors impact your work, your your practice? I would say that I've had a few really, really powerful just teachers in general. When I was younger, I had an art teacher who was a nun at the convent and I would go once a week to take classes and she would help me to make uh, sort of Bob Ross replicas in oil paint as a fifth grader. And I felt like a really a professional artist at that point. Um, so that was kind of when I first really felt like an artist, but I didn't obviously understand the the context for for everything else. And then when I got to college, I had this professor, 
undergrad who was sort of interested in the intersection of art and shamanism and ritual. So he kind of opened up, I think, gave me kind of a freedom of movement within materials that I still have to this day that I think I'm really grateful for. And then finally in graduate school, which I went to later, I was 36 when I went to get my MFA. I had two professors that really changed my life. One, her name was Kate Moran. And she just asked these amazing questions. She has this ability to to take you outside of your own head and to look at your practice from the outside, which is such a valuable thing to be able to do. And then this other professor who actually ran the program, Didier William, who's an amazing artist. And he just opened my eyes to so many things, including, you know, what it means to have a rigorous practice and to engage in contemporary dialogue and why it's important to know where you fit in, in that conversation. So without, I'd say any of those four people, I probably wouldn't be where I am, but they all helped and open up the art space to me in very different ways. How would you define your practice? What materials do you use? What's your process? Share that with us. I consider myself a material artist. I kind of move through any materials that I can find, but I definitely have a proclivity for textiles because in my younger, like when I was in my 20s, I was trained as a textile designer and I worked with textiles. I think, you know, having a father from India and my mom who was a craft quilter, you know, textiles are a really big, were a really big part of my material memory always. It's a language that I, I understand. And so textiles are very, very important. And I work mostly now with felting, which is an ancient process. One of the oldest ways of making fabric, uh, where you, you use water and soap and wool and sort of agitate it until it forms a piece, a textile, a piece of fabric. I've added to that needle felting, which is just a different process, not as permanent in it can, it's a reversible process, but working with the wool in a painterly way is kind of this perfect combination for me to be able to be sculptural and painterly at the same time. But I still work with found objects and ceramics and Anything really I can get my hands on. I did the residency at Dudenay at the workspace uh, residency they have, which is a paper making residency in Brooklyn. It's out of this world. And, you know, paper pulp is a fiber ultimately. And so there's a connection between the way all of these things work and how you can have a visual language moving across various materials. So I work with all these things, but primarily I would say textiles and at the moment felting, which I discovered during the pandemic. And I recently saw work, an exhibition that you have. And when I viewed it, I asked myself, does she consider this sculpture? Really good question. I think I do. You know, I think of myself as an object maker first and then as an image maker second. So Even when something is 2D and framed on the wall, to me, it has a presence and a thingness that, you know, you could hold, you could hold it. And I have to put them in frames and protect them with glass because of the nature of textiles being susceptible to insects or dust or any number of things. But in the dream world, people could hold and touch these things. In my studio, that's allowed. (laughs) And so I do think of them as as sculptures, especially when I embed the felted imagery inside of a found object or a made 
a made object. And when do you know a work is finished? That I think is more an intuitive, an intuitive thing. And I'm sure it's informed by, you know, studying art history and learning about composition and being a, I was a high school art teacher for 10 years. So, you know, I was drilling those things into my students as well. So I think, you know, there is this structure that we have by nature of being in this world, but I really do believe in, and the intuitive part of the process uh, of making. And so I listened to that or I tried to listen to that. There's a, there's a new piece that's been, I finally just finished that I've hated for months. I just like, I couldn't get it. I just, I hung it on the wall just to stare at me and kind of taunt me. And then I finally figured it out and I'm so grateful <laughs> that I can put it away. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. And, and when do the uh, titles of your work enter the creative process? I would say titles are probably the least creative part of my process. Um, I I tend to be pretty literal when it comes to titles, and I'm not. I haven't done enough digging into understanding why why that is yet. I'm still working on that. But my titles tend to be very descriptive and literal, and I don't know if it's for me a way of art archiving. I, you know, it's a way of naming these people who I'm representing because those people are important to me very specifically who they are that that it's them and it's not just someone so it could be because of that but the titles usually come at the end and are very descriptive of for instance one i just showed at freeze was called two miles behind a chicken truck in bentonville arkansas <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's exactly what it was <laughs> do you listen to music while you're working Always, always, always. And this is kind of interesting because the music will change pretty much from year to year. I've been making these Spotify playlists since 2011. I used to play them in the classroom, you know, for my students, like when, when my students were working. And that's when I kind of got into the habit of making, you know, a new playlist every year with any songs that I heard that year that I just kind of liked, throw them on or any songs that somebody sent to me that they thought I should listen to. I would just throw it onto the playlist. So I have all these playlists that I, I listen to. And, and so any artwork can kind of be tied to a particular year's playlist. And it's a good way for me to kind of remember where I was in the studio at any time. What does your workspace look and feel like? I hope that people would say it's comfortable, sort of like, sort of cozy. I um. I'm, I live in a studio apartment and my home is very small. So I don't really invite people into that space often because it's it's my bedroom, you know. So having a studio has been for me in New York, this amazing way to bring people in and host people and welcome people in a way that I haven't been able to do in, in my apartment living. And especially after COVID, it's been so nice. So my studio is in the Elizabeth Foundation building on 39th Street. And I have chairs and I have a mini fridge and an espresso and coffee seltzer water, snacks, whatever. Um, and it, I try to make it feel not just for other people, but also for myself, like a, a comfortable place that I, I want to go. And it so far, it has been that. And I, I'm happy that I've been able to have it be that way. It is also a bit overwhelming with how many things are in there, you know, just as artists go, especially one like me who collects things, you know, it's kind of a, a jigsaw puzzle, how, like fitting Fitting things, moving things around, hanging things up, 
but I have this really big felting table in the middle that my friend Silas made for me. And that is my, that's kind of the center of the whole space. And it's where everything happens. What do you enjoy most about your practice? Being in there and making the work is when I feel the most authentic, authentically myself. Uh, It's a very sort of natural fluid state uh, that I don't, I don't get to access most of the rest of the time, you know, in my, in my daily life. There's no performance in there. There's no pleasing in there. It's just kind of really being. And I think that's what I, I love the most about it. What motivates you to create? That's a tough one too, or a good one. It's just there. I really feel like it's my vocation. I don't have any other option. It really, it just comes from, from a place I don't, I don't know where it is or where it comes from, but I'm really glad it's there. What would you say are the most substantial challenges that you've encountered as an artist? There are so many, I have to say, you know, it's, it's not an easy, nothing is easy. I mean, to be fair, nothing is easy, but I think, you know, a challenge with this, choosing this career path or not choosing it, but being involved in it is there are a lot of things that are not, that have nothing to do with being an artist that are required to be able to move through the quote unquote art world. And that's, that's always challenging. You know, we have to be social networking. We have to have, have accounting skills, web, web design, marketing skills. You have to make time to there, the, the, just the number of things that, that we have to do to fit into a 24 hour day are, are so great. And it's not, it's not that I wouldn't want to do, do them. It's just that sometimes I wish there was more time to relax or to like, I, I haven't really traveled for fun since I started being an artist full time. And that doesn't mean I haven't traveled and had fun, but most of the trips are for work first. And then I find a way to, you know, see friends or do something, you know, with it. And, um, and so those kinds of things, those kinds of things I find challenging. Another thing is being a woman in the art world is, I often say a radical act just because statistically it is so staggeringly unequal when it comes to representation, compensation, everything you can think of. And then being a brown woman, you know, it just adds adds to it. And I think, you know, I don't use that as a crutch in any way, but I do think it's important to acknowledge and name the things that we are up against. And I always just challenge myself that, you know, if you, you just have to, I just have to keep making better work because at some point, if the work is good enough, it will transcend all of these other challenges. And that's my goal all the time. I'm always pushing and I'm always pushing and trying to make the work better so that, you know, it's sort of a, it's it's a hopefulness in the face of these sometimes difficult or intimidating statistics. How do you keep learning? I'm a natural lifelong student learner. So um, I'm always trying to learn new materials, new new equipment and challenging myself as much as I can. So I'm always going to listen to other people's talks. Tonight, I'm going to go hear Chanupa Hanska Luger talk at Parsons. I, I go to as many artist events and museum events and gallery events as I can to learn about how other people are making and, and 
engaging with the world. You know, I do these residencies like I did a ceramics residency this past summer at the Archie Bray Foundation. I'm going to do another one at Greenwich House Pottery in August. So I'm continuing to learn, you know, new materials. As I mentioned, the Dudenay one, I learned about paper pulp. I taught myself felting from YouTube. And I think I'll just constantly, you know, a dream of mine is going to be to like move into glass. I did a glass class in college at Urban Glass. And so I hope someday I can do a fellowship over there and and see where the work can go. I'm I'm endlessly curious when it comes to materials and and ideas. So I'll just I'll seek those things out any way I can. What are you excited about right now? Oh my gosh, so many things. So we just got back from Freeze. This weekend I get to go to Washington DC. There's a group show curated by Field Projects that I'm part of called Crisis of Image at the Mocha Arlington in Virginia. And then next month, I have a solo show, my first solo show in two years um, at Swarthmore College. And it's going to be a survey of, of a lot of the different materials that I use. So there'll be paper, there'll be textiles, there'll be ceramics and found objects. So that's really, really exciting. And then I have a few more group shows coming up later in the year that I'll be able to share about as time goes on. And I'll be doing an independent uh, solo booth with regular normal gallery at independent in May. So, oh, and I have a residency that I'm starting next week at the Museum of Art and Design. So those are all exciting things around the corner. And I'm excited about all of them. When you're working, do you think about who your audience is? And do you think about whether or not they understand your narrative? When I'm working, I don't think about it, but I think about it after. And um, it's a really unique and special experience to be able to watch people see and interact with the work because it reminds me that everything that the work is about, even from a narrative standpoint, is is about the human condition. And so there is a universality kind of there, regardless of how specific the entry point might be. And, and so that I hope there is something familiar for people when they look at the work. I really do, even if it's not a a body that they recognize or uh, even a landscape that they recognize. I hope that there's something about the interaction and the humanness that that is that speaks to people. But say, you know, that said, every piece doesn't speak to every person. You know, these these works are are really specific and and different. Sometimes the object that they're embedded in is the thing that people respond to. Sometimes it's part of the image itself. And so I like, I try to be open to the fact that every piece isn't for everyone, but everyone hopefully can find something in some piece. Are there concepts or thoughts that connect the work? Definitely. I think, you know, I'm biracial. And we talked about this, we have talked about this before. I think, you know, there's there's a, a type of code switching that has to happen, but also like a double identity that also comes along with that. It's, it's especially different, I think, when you present as non-white in a predominantly white environment, even though I'm from that, I was born in that town, I was never really considered from that town. So... There's like an othering that I constantly battle with and think about that's in the work. And then also diaspora, uh, having a father who was an immigrant from India. There's a lot of weight and trauma that comes with those 
histories that are also spoken and unspoken embedded in everything that that comes after and so i think about those things as well and then the labor you know women's work i work with traditionally women's labor or women's crafts and that's not unintentional it's important to me to work with humble materials and to to elevate them to to be in conversation with traditionally more hierarchically accepted materials. So I think I think about a lot of those things. It's it's I think summarily it's maybe thinking about like a placement or a context of of any of us in any and all of these different orbs that were floating in at at at, at all times. Before we end this episode, I do want to go back to your process. And I, my question is, what's the driver behind the colors that you choose? I think the colors specifically for me are a mix of the reference image that I'm working from. And then they they become in conversation with the the objects or the materials that I have. So because I don't dye my own wool, and I use wools that I source from different places or people have donated. Part of my process is is figuring out how to translate these memories and these these reference images into into something that feels whole and and translates the the emotion I'm trying to translate. But I tend to be drawn to natural colors. It's rare that I'll use really, really bright colors. And I tend to be drawn to sort of jewel tones and and pinks and grays and mobs. So those are the colors that tend to show up the most in the work. So if you ever see anything super bright, you'll know it's a it's a there's something going on there. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, this has been great, and this is our last question. Uh, once again, I appreciate your time. What do you feel is the purpose of art? And as an artist, what is your role? I struggle to know kind of what the purpose of just even being here is um but i think arts as close to it as as i can understand and i think i think its purpose is exactly that to help us try to make meaning with all of this information that we're bombarded with all the time and i i think that my job as an artist is to present work that makes space for people to either see themselves or question themselves or feel like they belong. Well, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you, Phyllis. I really appreciate taking time to talk to me today. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram. 